Let's stand together, if you will, please.
sorrows dead in my sin Lost without hope with no place to begin Your love made a way to let mercy come in When death was arrested and my life began
pray, Father, we do praise you as the risen Son, the risen Son of God, not just the risen Son of God, but God Himself. And we celebrate you this day for who you are. We celebrate you this day for your attributes, your characters, your, uh, your characteristics. And Father, we ask that you inhabit the praises of your people. Father, we ask that you would unify the hearts of your church today as we gather, not just here as a local expression of the global body, but that we would gather all across this world and we would celebrate not just the incarnation, but we would celebrate all that the incarnation led to, ultimately being the gospel and then our life. So Lord, give us hearts of celebration today. Give us focus, give us drive, give us energy that is right um, uh, that is rightly directed towards you, that is positive and that is whole. And Lord, inhabit the praises of your people. In Jesus' name, right. amen. Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody. So this we're coming into, remind me again, what holiday is it? Is it Easter? <laughs> Christmas. That's right. That's right. Everybody excited about Christmas? Yeah. 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 All right. Well, we're coming into it. It's this next week. Um, all right. Well, last week, the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about Jesus. And we talked about two, two weeks ago, we talked about Jesus and the incarnation. Jesus, who uh, was existed before he was born and him coming as a human and being born in a manger as a baby and taking on all those attributes and what it means for Jesus to be human. All right, and then last week, we talked about Jesus emptying himself. We looked at a passage from Philippians and what that means that Jesus, he, he covered a lot of his divine attributes and he didn't use them. He could have used them, but he didn't use them. He had them available. He didn't lose any of them. He didn't become less God, but he covered, he covered over them. Okay, and we talked about that, what that means. So the, today... We're going to talk about something else regarding Jesus, that Jesus lived in the power of the Spirit, okay? So all of these things are kind of coming together to help us give us, help give us a fuller picture of who Jesus was and what he came to do, all right? Now, the Old Testament prophets in the Old Testament, they, they spoke a lot about the, the Messiah and that the Messiah would have the Spirit of the Lord on him. And one of those key uh, prophets that spoke a lot about it was Isaiah. And we're going to look at a passage in Isaiah here in a second. But it raises a good question. Okay, let's think about this. If Jesus was fully God, if he was 100% God, why would he need the Spirit of God? Okay, if he was fully God, why would he need the Spirit of God on him? What does it matter if Jesus was given... Hang on there. Away. What does it matter if Jesus was given the Spirit? If he already had the same power within himself. Okay, are you tracking with me? If Jesus was fully God and he had all the fullness of God, Scripture says all the fullness of God dwelled in him in bodily form. Okay, then why would he need the Spirit of God? What's the purpose of God giving Jesus the Spirit? And why does the Old Testament make such a big deal about it? So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Okay, I know that, that fruit's way up here. That's pretty high. Okay, So I'm going to explain this from a passage, and then we're going to use an example that I hope will help bring this down to where we can kind of bite into that fruit and see that it's really good. Okay, All right, so Isaiah 61 says this. Let me read this for you. Isaiah wrote this long before Jesus ever was born. He said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's writing about the Messiah. He said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and, to, uh, uh, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, 
to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance for our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Okay, so Isaiah said this of the Messiah, who is Jesus. Okay, now this is a key passage about the Messiah. Okay, now one of the reasons that it's a key passage about it is because in Luke 4, Jesus is sitting in the synagogue. Okay, he's sitting in the synagogue with the Jewish leaders, and they hand him the scroll of Isaiah, and they ask him to read from it. And do you know what he reads? He reads this passage. He reads it, and then he looks at everybody, and he says, this prophecy is fulfilled today. Do you know what he was saying? He's saying, I'm this guy. I'm this Messiah whom, the, whom Isaiah said the Spirit would be upon him. So that's kind of a big deal, right? That Jesus says, okay, this passage right here, this is being fulfilled in your midst. It's happening right now, and I'm this guy. So we ought to pay real close attention to what he says. Now, one of the key things in that passage, if you, uh, as, as we read it, is that the Messiah came to fulfill the calling uh, of God, okay? And what did Jesus do? Somebody tell me, what did Jesus do when he was on earth? What was one of the, what, what's something he did? Did he fish a lot? Okay, not like for fish, fish, right? He, he Fishers of men, okay? What did Jesus do? Tell me something Jesus did. Pop quiz. What? He did miracles, right? Okay, he did miracles. Now, did he just do miracles to say, ah, oh, this is cool? No, all of his miracles testified to the fact that he was God, right? Okay, these were things that were told in the Old Testament. The Messiah is going to do these things, and it's going to give testimony that he is who God has sent him, okay? All right, so he did miracles. What else did he do? He did a lot of teaching, didn't he, right? In the Gospels, we find a lot of teaching, parables, stories that Jesus told that were meant to teach, and he preached. He proclaimed the good news. Mark opens his gospel by saying that, that Jesus came to preach the good news. Okay? So these are all things that Jesus did. So Jesus calling to proclaim what God had sent him to proclaim that came from the Spirit whom the Father gave to him. Okay? So Jesus came and, and lived in subjection uh, and obedience to God through the power of the Spirit. Okay? That's what we find. We also find another story where Jesus, in Matthew 12, Jesus, uh, he just performed a miracle. He cast a demon out of a man. And the religious leaders are sitting here scratching their head going, all right, how do we explain this? Because I'll tell you a secret. They don't like Jesus. The religious leaders don't like Jesus. And so they're trying to explain, okay, how do we explain this to the people who've just witnessed this? And they stand up and they tell the people, this man's casting demons out by the power of Satan. And Jesus goes, wait, 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 wait. Let's think about this. If you're going to build a house, why would you pull the foundation out from under the house? It doesn't work. If Satan's trying to upset what God's doing, why would he cast his henchmen out? Right? You send workers to go build a house, and then you take six of them and you send them away. He said, it doesn't make sense. He said, but if I, and here's the key thing, if I, by the, by the Spirit of God, cast out demons, then the kingdom of God's come into your midst. So you see what he says. Jesus is saying, if I've done this by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come here. He said, religious leaders, you know your Old Testament. 
you ought to recognize this as God fulfilling the promise that he said, which happens through his spirit. Okay, so, the, so Jesus performing his miracles, Jesus teaching and proclaiming the good news, all of these things are done by the power of the spirit. And Jesus recognizes this. You see that? Jesus doesn't go, look, I did this on my own. He gives glory to the spirit for doing this. Okay, so all that Jesus did, all of his preaching, all of his teaching, all of his miracles was done through his reliance on the Spirit. Now the question is why? Why? I know we're stretching brains here. This is, this is stretching, okay? All right. Well, Jesus came to live as one of us, right? We've talked about this. We talked about this in the incarnation. He had to, and if he was going to live as one of us, he had to rely on the Spirit, Okay? Jesus tells his disciples later uh, in, in the Gospels, he says, the same spirit that I'm relying on, I'm going to give that spirit to you. I'm going to give that spirit to you. See, that's what we were created for. We were created to live in obedience to God and faith to him through the power of his spirit. But there's a barrier there. What's the barrier that keeps us from getting close to God? It's a three-letter word. Anybody want to take a guess? Starts with the s, ends in n. There, who said it? Yes, very good, very good. It's sin, right? Sin is what keeps us from being close to God, keeps us from being obedient to God. And so Jesus came, he covered his divine attributes, a lot of them, and he lived fully as a human, as a man, in reliance upon the Spirit to do what God had sent him to do. Do you see that? Okay? And he showed us how to live in obedience to God through the power of that spirit. Okay? Now let me give you an example. Because like I said, I mean that, that's high fruit. That's way up here on the tree. Okay? So let me give you an example. How many of you have ever, how many of you have ever seen your parents or grandparents or somebody put together furniture that came in a box? Like from Ikea or something like that. Okay? Box furniture, right? What's in that box? Okay, there you go. Furniture. You should be up here and teach. You know? <laughs> Furniture. What else is in that box, right? A lot of packing paper and stuff like that, right? Isn't there usually like, there's like one magic tool in it. One little magic tool. It's like a little wrench. You seen those? My, my kids make a big deal about this wrench. They've seen me put together a couple pieces of furniture. And I usually ask them to help me with it. And we take that little wrench and that's like the magic tool that, that makes it work. You know, if you don't have that tool, then it doesn't work. Okay? So we'll use the example of my, my kids and I. They're, they're in Tennessee with their grandparents, but they would be all excited because they know what that tool is. I was going to bring one, but I forgot about it. So there's a little tool that helps you put together that furniture. Okay? So let's imagine my, my girls and I, we're sitting down and we're building this, this, uh, this piece of furniture. Okay? And we're putting it together. Okay? Piece by piece. And I'm showing them. Okay, here's, here's the little screws that go in here. Okay, and we put this together, and I use the tool. Okay, now, then I hand them the tool. Okay, show you. Here's how to do it. And they're watching. They're watching real close. Okay, now, I, I build houses for a living. Okay, I have a, I have a garage that's full of some really cool tool, tools that I can build just about anything. And I've been building for a long time. Okay, and so I can go in my garage, and I could probably build that same piece of furniture, possibly better. No, because, I mean, it's particle board. Okay, but I could I could build that without the instructions, without you know, without the little tool, right? But we're putting this piece of furniture together, and I'm showing my kids how to put it together. And then we do one part of it, and then I hand them the tool, and I say, "Okay, now you do it." 
And then they'll take the tool and they'll put a drawer together. We did this with, with a little dresser where I put a drawer together. I showed them how to do it and I handed them the tool and I said, I had a grace. Now you do it. And so she took the tool and she, you know, kind of bumbled and fumbled through it. And I helped kind of guide her through it. Okay. Now, could I have gone and in my garage built the same thing without them? Yeah, absolutely. Of course. But that wasn't the point. The point was to use the tool that I knew that they could use to put the furniture together and then hand that to them and say, now you do it. Okay? See the connection here with what we're talking about. Could Jesus have done all that he did without, you know, on his own? Yes, and phenomenally more. But he didn't. He laid that aside and he said, I'm going to live in subjection to the Spirit. The same tool that you have at your disposal. And he did. And he showed us how to live. Relying on the Spirit of God in obedience. And then he said, now I'm going to give you this same tool. Do as I did. Follow God through the power of the Spirit. Is that helpful? Does that kind of help bring that, that fruit down a little bit where we can grab hold of it? I know these are the things that we talk about. I mean, they're, they're tough things. Okay, they're not your basic Bible story things, but they're they're big ideas that help bring the picture of who Jesus is together and hopefully help us see what it means to follow Christ. All right. Well, I appreciate your guys attention. Always do. Let me pray for us and then you guys can go sit down. Father God, Lord, we thank you. Thank you and praise you, Father, that you've not left us alone with pieces and, 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 and instructions that we don't understand and say, all right, now just go and build your life around me because father the old testament is just a story of the failure of people to do that alone and you sent jesus father who's the master carpenter he's the master builder and he did what we could not do he lived in obedience to you through the power of the Spirit. And then as He died and was resurrected and He returned, He said, now here's my Spirit. I'm giving this to you. Now walk in a way that pleases God. Honor Him. And do as I did. So Father, I pray for these young minds, young and old alike, Father, that we would see Jesus a little more clearly that we would think a little bit more about what it means to live in obedience to you through your Spirit. That we would seek you in prayer continually. And that, Father, your Spirit would fill us. doesn't mean that we're going to do the same miracles that Jesus did. Some may perhaps. But, Father, for the most part, it will be walking in accordance with your obedience and living in a way that makes much of you and exalts you in the lives of other people around us. Where that our lives might be a light that doesn't shine on us, but that shines on Christ. So Father, I pray that these children this morning would see Jesus a little more clearly. Their hearts would be tuned a little more to draw nearer to Him. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Alright, thank you guys. Oh, come, all you
And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. 
but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt of offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the Lord will prosper in his hand. And the will of the Lord, sorry, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear the iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils among the strong, because he poured out his life into death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many, and many intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, uh, I just want to start off by thanking you for this church body and uh, how, how much it has meant to me personally, Lord, and just the, the life and love that we have here, Lord. Um, and thank you for the leadership that you have blessed us with. Um, as we head into this season, uh, it, it's often easy to be burdened with uh, just logistics and family, who's going where, moving around. Did I get this? Is everything taken care of? Is everything right? And uh, it's easy for us to lose uh, sight of what is truly, truly important at this time, which is the celebration of Jesus' birth. And um, like Alan mentioned earlier, just uh, as the birth and life of Jesus completely led through the whole gospel to the final of him dying on the cross and uh, the the true celebration that we have in that and, and the true gift that that actually was. Um, just help us keep that in mind as we go through this season and really through our whole lives, Lord, just uh, help us to keep the our focus on you and what you have done for us, Lord. Um, I pray for Alan right now as he's coming up. I, I pray that, uh, again, just read from Isaiah, you, you do the same thing that for Alan as you did for Isaiah and give him the words directly from you, Lord. Um, to, and let your message pierce us individually, pierce our hearts, and uh, just really meet us on an individual level, Lord. Uh, we pray all these things in your name. Amen. Look, it's Christmas time, and I am a big fan. I'm a big fan of Christmas time, always have been. Um, uh, you know, I, I love to give gifts. There's no, uh, but there's no secret in that. I love receiving them. I'll just, uh, I'm an admitted, I'm, I'm an admitted addict of receiving gifts. I love gifts, right? So, um, that's not a hint to you all. That's not, uh, some kind of messaging to you to let you bring me gifts. I mean, if you love Jesus and your pastor, you would, but that's, uh, that is between you and the Lord. But in all seriousness, I do enjoy Christmas time. Uh, I'm very excited this year on a, on a very secular level. Let me just be honest with you because Sarah's mom and stepdad just brought me a massive griddle that I've already cooked one meal and some bacon on, which 
you know, bacon's really all that matters, right? So uh, I did r- fried rice last night, and it was, it was to me, it was fantastic. Uh, my daughter ate a couple of bowls, which is, you know, miraculous. My youngest son ate a couple of bowls. So uh, it's just, it's a, it's a lot of fun. But we do these things during Christmas. We get excited about it. There's a lot of tradition that goes into Christmas. We think about a lot of different things. Typically, we think of lights. We think of decorations. We think um, of, like I said, the traditions that we do. You think of Hopefully, for, for, for most of you, if not all of you, you have fond memories. Not everybody does, but fond memories of times that you spent at Christmas with family. We think of families. Um, there's just a lot of things that we, that we think of. We think of songs, you know, Silent Night, What Child Is This? Mary, Did You Know? Away in a Manger. Uh, we can't separate the thought of Jesus as a baby in a manger with the thought of lights and hot chocolate and decorations and presents. And these things are okay. These things are these things are, are, are absolutely fine to uh, consider. A lot of times pastors will map out their sermons so that uh, a particular sermon lands at a particular time. Um, Easter sermons, Christmas sermons, things of this nature, they try to map these things out so that it lands just so. And these things are fine. Also, and I do not do that. Um, we... <laughs> We, we don't know how long we're going to be in one thing from one day to the next. We're doing good to, to plan a sermon, you know, one week at a time, let alone sit there and map it out a year at a time, which a lot of pastors do who are much more organized than I am. Uh, I'm sure if Austin had the time, he could really do that, but we just don't have the time to do those things. So as the Lord would have it, we land right at the scourging and the crucifixion of Jesus, right at the Sunday before Christmas. You know, we talk about what we celebrate at Christmas, and we do think of the Incarnation. But you cannot think about the Incarnation without thinking for which Christ actually came. And that was that He would die. And though we don't like to gray out or darken our Christmas season with the thought of death and the thought of suffering and the thought of anguish and the thought of God's wrath and things like that, it's absolutely critical that we do. Because you cannot separate the incarnation of Jesus from the death of Jesus. And you can't separate the death of Jesus from the resurrection of Jesus. And you can't separate the resurrection of Jesus from the gospel. And you can't separate the gospel from the hope of life that we have in Christ. They're all connected. So I happily deal with the scourging and the, and the crucifixion of Jesus today. So when we think about the scourging and the crucifixion, what are some of the things that come to mind? And I'm going to take a moment. I will promise you this. We'll get out on time. I have 11 pages of notes to my normal eight. Evan, calm down. So what we'll do is we will go until our time is up. And if I'm not finished, we'll roll into next week. Austin's going to be out of town, so I get another week to preach. So I will continue on and then move into what I have prepared to some degree for next week. So don't be afraid of these 11 pages. So... I want a little interaction this morning. I don't normally do that, or at least I, I receive involuntary interaction, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invite you to interact this morning. And when you think of the scourging and the crucifixion of Jesus, what are things that come to mind? Just blurt them out. What are some things that you think of? Torn flesh, yeah. Any, any kids have an answer? What do you think of when you hear scourging or crucifixion? Anything that you think of? Death, okay. Anything else? Anybody else, not just kids now. Yeah, yep, yeah, asphyxiation. I wrote down a few. Wrath, love, 
atonement, substitution, prophecy, the lamb's silence, forsaken, darkened, uh, I'm sorry, darkness, death, forgiveness, depravity, love, obedience, sorrow, joy, and hope. There's probably tons more that we could come up with, but these are just some of the things that immediately come to mind when we think of the scourging of Christ and his crucifixion. This is a major moment, by the way, in the scriptures. When you arrive here after thousands of verses, thousands of verses, by the way, that are filled with prophecies leading to this moment. For the reader, for the Christian, it is paramount, it is critical that all the things foretold about this moment come to pass. They have to. This is a big moment. Christianity hinges on this moment here. Now, the resurrection, but we're not going to get that far today. So understand, it hinges on the death and the resurrection of Jesus. But there's more to it than just the fact that Jesus died. There's some specifics that we have to see. This culminating moment, this is hundreds and even thousands of years of prophecy dating back to Adam and Eve about things that would happen here from the incarnation and then specifically to the death of Jesus. So he didn't just have to die, but he had to die a certain way. There is a specificity in the way that Jesus died. So, so kids, when you're reading the Bible and you're hearing these stories at Christmas, when you're hearing about Jesus coming and he's the light of the world, he's Emmanuel, God with us, understand that there was only one way that God could come, only one way to fulfill the scriptures. Born of a virgin, God with us, the God-man, in him dwells the fullness of deity in bodily form. There was only one way in which he would come that would be acceptable to fulfill the scriptures, and he did that. So this is not just the fact that he came, but he came in a certain way. This is not just the fact that he died, but he died a certain way. He had to face humiliation. He had to face humiliation. Because this is what the scriptures told us would happen. This is what God said in motion. Jesus had to suffer in the way that he suffered. Unique to anyone else who has ever suffered was the way that Christ suffered. And he had to suffer this way. So here's my objective today. To understand or to see or to work through the necessity of all the events that transpired to the end in, in the end of Jesus life so we're going to see why these things are necessary we'll see some of the implications next week how these things apply but what we need to see is why all of this had to happen in exactly the way it had to happen so it's a more detailed look or perspective into these events that happened on the last day of Jesus life wasn't happenstance it had to happen a certain way and the fact that it did happen that certain way made all of the difference. So, in John chapter 19, starting in verse 1, then Pilate took Jesus and he flogged him. Does anyone else's uh, translation say something other than flogged? Scourged him? Scourged and flogged? That's the two things we get? Okay, so um, I think the NASB says scourged. Uh, ESV says flogged, which is the same thing. Let me read just a little bit more down to where we get the crucifixion to give you a full picture of this. The pilot then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to him, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. 
Pilate said to them, Behold, the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, we ought to, uh, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. So he entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? And Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him and said, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called uh, the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, uh, Gabatha, or Gabatha, I don't know how to pronounce that. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold, your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified. So there's a few things that I want us to see that are necessities in the way that the events of Jesus' last day transpired. I think today is fairly low-hanging fruit, nothing too complicated. I'm hoping that the kids can connect with this well. I have them in mind as I'm walking through this because... Our goal here is to create a framework, a theological framework, not just for us, but for our kids, so that the weight of the gospel, the weight and the magnitude of the scourging and the crucifixion and all that went along with that weighs heavily, not to to rob them of their Christmas, but to establish a true and more meaningful joy as the heart of their Christmas season. So you take that with that intention. So a few things I want us to see. First of all, we have to see in this text that there is a necessity with regards to the sovereignty of God. Now, sovereignty means the rule of God, the control of God. He controls all things. All things happen after the counsel of His will. That's sovereignty. Who can frustrate the will of God, Paul writes in Romans, that is sovereignty. All things come to pass according to what God decrees. Right? There's no, there, there's no plan B. There's no and, if, or, buts that come about when God says do a thing. He makes sure that a thing comes to pass because He's decreed it to happen that way. So this is the sovereignty of God. And we see the sovereignty of God in this text. It clearly displays it. First of all, we see the sovereignty of God in, 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 in Pilate being powerless to get rid of Jesus. So this is interesting. So you have the governor of Rome who has a little bit of authority, a little bit of power. Not quite what Caesar had, but still a lot of power. He tells Jesus, listen man, I can let you go or I can crucify you. So you better speak up. And Pilate, on a number of occasions through this text, is, is trying to get rid of Jesus. He's looking for any and every excuse not to condemn this man before he had him scourged. So he's looking for all of these excuses, but it just wouldn't happen. He stood out on a number of occasions before the crowd saying, hey, look, you know, what's, what's, what's the deal here? 
you know, I find no fault in this man. Take him away, deal with him. He didn't want to deal with this issue because he just couldn't find a justifiable reason to, to destroy him. And so he tries to get out of it, having the power to do so. And he acquiesces to the threats of the Jewish leaders. Well, you're no friend of Caesar. You're no friend of Caesar. You're no friend of Rome. And so Pilate hears these things and he becomes concerned and he eventually hands over Jesus. Look, there was never any question as to how things would play out because we've been told from the scriptures long before Jesus even was uh, even arrived exactly what would happen. And I've said this on a number of occasions. I think I even referenced it last week when when Luke writes in his gospel in regards, in context, where Jesus is handed over. He said these things happened according to what God's hand and plan had predestined to occur. This was this was God ushering this in. This is God doing this. God's momentum is behind this. So man's not going to frustrate what God's doing. You know, even if the Jews would have relented, if the Jews would have changed their mind, if Pilate would have said, you know what, no, 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 nothing would have changed. Because this was the trajectory that Jesus was set. For so long, Jesus avoids and evades death. Because why? His time had not yet come. His time, meaning God's will, was not for him to die at this point. God's will was not for him to die at this point. God's foreordained, preordained plan was not that he would die at this time. Now the time had come for Jesus to die. So it was necessary that Pilate didn't let him go. It was necessary that the Jews continued on their rant. It was necessary that Jesus... I'm sorry, that God in his sovereignty brought these things and pushed them through all the way to the end. God will never leave his glory in the hands of men. And that's what's happening here. That's what's happening. God is ensuring that things will happen exactly how they have to happen. First, for his glory. And we would be foolish to ever think that God would leave his glory in the hands of men. That this master plan that God had set into motion before the foundation, that he would possibly leave it to men, is ridiculous. Because God does not share his glory with another. When glory's on the table and when glory is at stake, you don't hand it to a mere man. You don't hand it to a mere mortal, broken vessel that is prone to wander and say, I sure hope that things turn out okay. No, no. Nothing teaches us that in the scripture, but that God does not share his glory with another and that all things happen after the counsel of his will. Why? So that God is ensured to be glorified. Why would we want anything else to happen that God intends to happen? Because if God is perfect and therefore everything he does is a product of his perfections, why would we want anything else to happen? Because anything else would be less than perfect as far as the will and the plan of God. And therefore no good for us. God would not leave redemption in the hands of men. There's too much at stake. Consider this. Let me just just back up for just a second. We've talked before about about the tremendous love the Father has for the Son. And therefore, God has tremendous love for the Son's bride. And that's what's on the chopping block right now. The bride of Christ. They have to be rescued. She has to be delivered. She has to be redeemed. And where God is doing things for his glory and God is doing things out of his 
uh, infinitely deep love for his son, attached to that necessarily is his love for the bride. So what does he do? His love for the son, therefore his love for the bride. So what does he do? He makes a way for the bride to be with the son. And that's through the cross. So absolutely, there's a necessity for God's sovereign hand to work through here because we're dealing with the bride of Christ, Christ's eternal bride, who he has washed with the water of the word, who is being prepared now to be with him in eternity in this loving, effectual, affectionate relationship that is, that is pure than anything that we can fathom or describe here on this earth. That's what's at stake. So of course, God's not going to leave that up to men. God's not on his throne hoping and crossing his fingers that, that, that Pilate won't give him over, that Pilate won't say, you know, just go somewhere else, go back over there and, be, suffer, and suffer under Jewish law. That's not the hope at all. He's like, no, <laughs> this is not what's going to happen. So God orchestrated that Pilate would not hand him over, even though he tried. So there's a necessity with regards to the sovereignty of God. There's also more necessity here. There's the necessity of fulfilled prophecy. Necessity of fulfilled prophecy. I want to show you something. You can't read all of this from where you are, but what I have here are 28, 28 prophecies. Okay, you can kind of see just how I scroll through. These are 28 prophecies, all, all with regards to the last day of Jesus' life. 28, all of them fulfilled. Do you understand that if one of these did not come to fruition, we have a major problem with the Bible? A major problem. Because the Bible itself teaches us that if someone prophesies and it doesn't come to pass, he's a false prophet. We've got a major problem if prophecies with regards to the Messiah or with regards to his crucifixion, if those things start to fall apart within the confines of God's holy word. We have major, major problems if that happens. So there's a necessity that these prophecies were fulfilled, that they came to pass exactly how they were told that they would come to pass. You see, there's a lot of cults and world religions out here that make, that make uh, prophecies haphazardly. Mormons and Jehovah's Witness, their, their, their past is riddled with prophecies of the, of the coming of the kingdom of God, of the end of the world, of all of these kind of things that all fail. And yet, because of brainwashing, because of hardness and darkened in their understanding and hardness of their heart, they keep subscribing to empty and vain religion. When it offers absolutely nothing. Kenneth Copeland, another, another great candidate, <laughs> um, you know, making prophecies and blowing COVID away with his breath and all this nonsense. These are the kind of things that we're dealing with. They, we see what happens. They make these prophecies and they never happen. Could you imagine Isaiah? Could you imagine all of these Old Testament prophets being lumped in with the same, cap, uh, same camp with your Kenneth Copelands, your Joseph Smiths, your Charles Taze Russells, and Frederick Franz, and Nathan Norris, and all of these people that represent all these different cult and religious camps? Someone who makes a claim that doesn't materialize is a false prophet according to the Scriptures. And there are 28 here that I could show you that were fulfilled in Christ. There are 1,817 prophecies in the Bible, or around that many. If one of these has failed, then the Bible loses credibility. That's 1,817. I mean, how many of you would shoot 1,817 free throws and shoot 100%? I mean, 
How many of you would try to make 100 on a test 1,817 times and pass with 100 1,817 times? Calvin, no. <laughs> I make 100. <laughs> Listen, these things were told. There's a, there's a necessity here. I love, just imagine someone. I try to tell my kids all the time when we're having like, you know, family time, Bible time or whatever. I'm like, look, see this? And I, I mean, I have these nerd moments. I, know, I mean, I'm, I'm a stud. I understand that. But I have these nerd moments. And sometimes I'm like, you know, kids, this is happening. And let me show you something. So we're flipping back to Isaiah 53. I'm like, you know, I'm kind of geeking out over, over the scourging here. And the kids are like, this is grievous. I'm like, but no, 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 no. Isaiah says, by his stripes are healed. Do you know what he's talking about? In a big nerd moment, I'm like, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before this happened to Jesus, they're talking about this stuff. And it didn't just happen here. It happened here, here, and here, and here, and here. And then it came to fulfillment here. I mean, that, that should blow your mind and give you so much reason to worship and celebrate because it means the implications of that are, are just infinite that these things came to pass. I mean, Zechariah 13, 7, God will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Where did the disciples go? They scattered. Isaiah 53, 7, he was led like a lamb to slaughter and a sheep silent before shearers. He never said a word. Isaiah 53, 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Psalm twenty two sixteen. my enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and they have pierced my feet. Isaiah 56, I offered my back to those who beat me and my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I do not hide my face from mockery and spitting. Isaiah 53, 10 and 11, yet it was, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand and out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one my servant make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Psalm sixty nine twenty one. They offer me sour wine for my thirst. Where do we see that? Psalm one hundred nine four. I love them, but they try to destroy me with accusations, even as, even as I am praying for them. Psalm twenty two eighteen. They divide my garments among themselves and throw dice for my clothing. Darkness covered the area when Jesus died. Amos 8, 9 says, In that day, says the Sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth while it is still day. After Jesus was taken from the cross, Joseph of Arimathea came to claim his body. Joseph was a wealthy man, and the Scripture says in Isaiah 53, 9, that he was put, Jesus was put in a rich man's grave over and over and over again. Prophecies being fulfilled left and right. But if they weren't fulfilled, we've got a big problem. The Bible loses credibility. If the Bible loses credibility, which is our standard, which is our truth, which is our source of hope, because it contains within it the words of life, then what do we do? So there's a necessity when it comes to the fulfillment of prophecy. Third, there's a necessity when it comes to Christ's humiliation. We understand that Christ was suspended on a cross, most likely naked, because the nature of 
the nature of the cross was to humiliate the condemned. For them to, su- to, for them to be subject to the scorn, to the ridicule, to the mockery, and to the shame of those who are spectators. Because they are condemned, because they are felons, because they are guilty. And that's the death that Jesus died. It was necessary that Christ humbled himself from the beginning to the end in order that we might be saved. Jesus was humbled in his, in his incarnation. <laughs> I mean, what is a baby if not helpless? What is a baby if not only able to cry to have needs met? And this is not, this, this is Jesus who had existed from eternity past. He becomes a baby and needed his mother's milk and needed to be clothed, needed to have his rear end wiped, needed to have all these things happen as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That's humility. Jesus' humiliation continued throughout his life, living as a common man, a a king, a king of the universe and beyond, intermingling with common folk. Not looked at as a king, not heralded as the mighty, all the things that are said about him, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. No one even considered those things. It was customary to harass and to taunt and humiliate the victim after they were scourged. We know that Jesus was handed over to be scourged. He was handed over to be flogged. More on that in just a second. But once that process was done, understand that Jesus had to walk through a gauntlet of humiliation. That's where we see the crown of thorns, mockery. Oh, you're a king? Well, let's, let's make you a crown fitting for a king of your stature. Put a robe around him. Purple represents royalty. So they're mocking that he's a king. Oh, we'll honor you as a king. Not to mention this robe will be placed around what was already a back that was torn to shreds. And it would stick, and I had heard before that they had taken, they would maybe take it off of him, ripping. I know when they took it off of him to put him on the cross, it would reopen those wounds as the, as the, as the fabric was, was, was drying onto his open wounds, and they would rip that off. You ever tore off a, a scab? Imagine your back. Imagine from your neck to your calf being ripped to the degree, according to Flavius Josephus, a Jewish historian who witnessed scourgings. He said, oftentimes the condemned, you would be able to see their innards, their organs. That's how devastating and how gruesome the scourging was. So Jesus was mocked as he went through a gauntlet of those who mocked him and brought him, uh, cast great shame upon him. I mean, he took on a job as a carpenter. (laughs) He came to seek and save those who are lost. You know, uh, I get jokes all the time, Austin. I don't know about you, but, oh, you're a pastor and a carpenter? I want to be like Jesus. Said, oh, if I only could be like Jesus, right? And so Jesus becomes a carpenter, you know, with this portfolio that says, I've created a universe, and all they're wanting is a chair or a table, you know, made out of raw materials, you know. Yeah, I can make a, I can make a table for you. I can make a chair for you, you know. I, uh, but I also did this whole creation of the world thing. I spoke that business into existence, you know. So Jesus' portfolio is amazing, but he's living as a commoner among common folks, you know, a, a, you know a, a diamond in the rough, you know, a diamond amongst trash, you know, steak amongst dog food. I mean, it's, it's I'm speaking anthropomorphically, okay? So there's all of these, these issues that, that just tell us that he was 
humble. And it's necessary. It's necessary that we come. Why? Because Isaiah told us from the beginning, none would esteem him. He would be stricken. He would be smitten of God. You know, he would be crushed. All of these things would happen to him. It was necessary that, 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 that he would come this way. Jews are still waiting for the red carpet to be rolled out and the triumphant king coming, not realizing that he has come, that he has triumphed. And they're missing those things. So the crown of thorns was placed on his head, purple robe around his back to mock him. They struck him with their hands. To them, Jesus was another man running through a gauntlet on his way to be executed. Just another man. Just a, another man to make fun of. I wonder how many of us find ourselves living as if Jesus was just another man. Just ordinary or common. This is the Christmas season, right? If you're not making much of Jesus now, then when? That's the incarnation. Keep in mind that these people were doing to Jesus physically what people do intellectually and emotionally with Jesus today. They rejected him, they hated him, but was this not what we were told would happen? I mean, as Christians, we don't read this and find surprise. We're like, oh my goodness, I can't believe this is happening to him. You know, hopefully as a Christian, you're reading this and you're seeing every, every, every punch, every stroke, every tug on his beard, every, every ripping of every scab, every nail driven in, you know, every breath that led to his death from asphyxiation, you know, asphyxiation. Hopefully you read that. And with every moment, every, every, every verb, every, every piece of it, you're like, man, it's coming. The fulfillment of these things is coming. It's happening just as, just as God ordained that it would. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and none would esteem him. So it was necessary that he would come humble. But it's also necessary that he would suffer. So let's look at the necessity of Christ's suffering. So we look at the scourging and the crucifixion. I've read to you the first, um, the first 15 verses we talked about scourging, and, the, and, and then we get to the crucifixion. So let me just briefly kind of let you know a little bit more about scourging. You know, I've talked about this before. We don't talk about it often. But uh, if you haven't heard this, hear this now. Uh, children, I want you to pay attention, okay, because uh, this, this, this happened to many, many, many men. But you need to understand what's going on because it's interesting that we see that Pilate took Jesus and they flogged him. And that's all that's mentioned. They took Jesus and they scourged him. There's no graphic detail. There's none of that. So you wouldn't know graphic detail unless you did research, unless you talked to someone from Rome, unless you read the writings of Flavius Josephus, who had witnessed some of these things and gave account of these things. So let me help to inform you a little bit. There was a rule in Jesus' day that free Roman citizens were exempt from scourgings. They were exempt from rods and were only to be used on foreigners, slaves, or gladiators. So Roman law protected people like Paul, protected people of Roman citizenship from being scourged unless there was some kind of major offense that they had committed. Jesus was obviously not a Roman, so he was not free from that. He was also not free from any Jewish law as far as being scourged. Jewish law dictated that there be 40 lashings limit, whereas Roman law had no limit to the lashings someone could receive during a scourging. Now, I don't know how many lashings Jesus received. I have read before that some scholars, they uh, assume 39. 
But what confuses me is that Jesus was scourged under Pilate, which would be under Roman law, under Roman authority. Because Pilate tries to push Jesus away and say, go deal with him under your law, under Jewish law. But no, he is dealt with under Roman law. Now, the scripture doesn't say if it was more than 40. It doesn't say if it was 7,000. It doesn't say those things. It probably wasn't a tremendously, tremendously high number. Of course, one lashing would be a high number as far as I'm concerned. You know, but, but reason being because there's a point at which the victim would just die. It was very bloody. It was very gory. You know, uh, one commentator said that the body would be reduced to quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. Organs, innards, all exposed. Meat torn from the bone where you could see through the rib cage into organs. A lot of them did die. They died from blood loss. Blood loss would lead to circulatory shock. So there were all kinds of things that would happen during this process of scourging. The Romans used various means to do this, various instruments, whips, straps, lashes, goads, stabs, uh, staffs, rods, chains, a scourge, or a flogrum, or a flagellum in the Latin, a scourge. All of them was a handle with some kind of straps coming out, be it eight straps, nine straps. You've heard of the cat of nine tails. Uh, there's some that would say Jesus was whipped with the cat of nine tails. There's nothing in the Bible to tell us that, so we don't know. We just know that he was scourged. And what they would use was one of several in from instruments that did this. All of them did the same thing. And that was that at the end you had lead or sharp bone or glass or rock or stone that was sharpened in order that it might grapple into the condemned's skin and then they would pull it out now while they were doing this process the romans used two what they called lictors two roman lictors so imagine guys that are uh you know a lot bigger than myself most likely let's say you got two travises or two stephen finleys or something like that standing here maybe even bigger than that that not to mention they're probably big and strong but they're trained to do this Romans didn't start scourging, nor did they start the crucifixion, but you could best be assured that they perfected it as a form of torture and then capital punishment with regards to the crucifixion. So either lictor would stand on either side. The condemned was stripped of all of their clothing. You know, uh, uh, some sources say that sometimes they would stand up and have to wrap their arms around a post. Others would say that they were hunched over a post. They believe that they actually have the post preserved that Jesus would have been hunched over. It's all in glass and all this kind of stuff. You can look it up. It's kind of weird to look at if that is, in fact, what they used to scourge Jesus. Either way, they were bound to this thing, and he would have to just be laying over this, and one lictor at a time would take their turns whipping across the neck, the back, the buttocks, the legs, the calves to rip apart the person suffering the scourging. And they would trade off so that because it was, it was a taxing endeavor. It took a lot of energy. burned a lot of calories. And when I was at work the other day, and, you know, either it's Austin having me dig holes that burns my calories, or, 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 or I was at work having to do a lot with a sledgehammer, and I'm, like, gassed. I'm like, I swung this thing four times. I'm done, you know. I'm old and fat. Let me go home. You know, i got to do something. And so, but I could imagine these men that are with, with, with all that they've got whipping across the back of Jesus, and they would take turns to ensure that each blow delivered the maximum amount of force. And they would just back and forth do this. Maybe 39 times, I don't know, maybe 109, I don't know. It doesn't matter. <laughs> what matters is by his stripes, we are healed. Scourging was 
so bad that prisoners would die from it sometimes, even though it wasn't capital punishment. Pain and blood loss usually set the stage for circulatory shock. Jewish historian Flavius Josephus, I said once already, that he had witnessed the innards being revealed after he saw a scourging. So Jesus was scourged. He was brought out before the crowd. And then Pilate has him here as this man. Okay, is this enough? Pilate tries to get rid of him again. Is this not enough? <laughs> you know, look at, this, look at this man. He's ripped to shreds, bleeding from his brow, bleeding from his back all the way down to his ankles. Is this not enough? And the crowd, and here, you, here again you see more of the height of man's depravity. Their bloodlust was still not quenched. They said, it's not enough. Crucify him. And when they would crucify an individual, the individual would usually carry his own cross. The horizontal beam, which traditionally is what they would carry. And that's called the patabulum, and it weighed somewhere between 125 to 150, or maybe even up to 175 pounds. And we understand that Jesus is carrying his cross, and we read in one of the Gospels that Simon of Cyrene had to come and help Jesus carry the cross. No wonder. Here you have a man, fully man, beaten within an inch of his life, probably having some serious circulatory shock type of a situation, not to mention this whole bleeding issue had already started in the garden with what doctors call hematidrosis because you're extremely stressed and therefore your, your sweat glands start to secrete blood instead of just sweat. And so all of these things, all of the suffering is taking place. Jesus has helped to carry his cross. He's brought to the place of the skull. He's brought to Golgotha. And then what we see is that he's thrown on this cross and then they take these nails and they put them through his wrists and they put them through his feet. I'm sure some people were tied up by the wrists. I don't, I don't hold the view that he had, he had uh, in, in his hands, uh, even though some of the scriptures say, see his hands, his nail-pierced hands. Back then they didn't have, uh, uh, you know, the, the word for hand was this. They didn't have wrist. They didn't have a word to describe wrist. So this was considered the hand. So I believe that because the Romans were so good at what they did, when they, when they drilled the nail into his wrist and in his feet, in the nail they went through what's called the sensory median nerve, and when they went through the foot, they went through what's called the plantar nerve. Either way, you're severing nerves. And I don't know if you've ever struck a nerve, but it hurts. It hurts bad. And so they would do this, and the person would suspend on the cross, and the person's already beaten within an inch of their life. Barely having the strength to hold themselves up there, they would put this little knob at the bottom where the feet were so that the condemned could push themselves up to catch a breath. Because otherwise, they're just hanging there, and that's why they would eventually die. Because they would run out of the strength to push themselves up to breathe. Now, scourging, again, was usually accompanied by crucifixion or done before as a precursor to crucifixion. But imagine someone who had been scourged and then crucified. I mean, I think there's a reason we sing old rugged cross because you've got a condemned individual whose back is ripped to pieces, thrown on a cross. And in order to breathe, he has to push himself up and rub his open back against an old wooden beam. So it just adds more to the effect of the crucifixion as we see these things. Again, asphyxiation was typically the cause of death at, on, the, on the cross. This is why the soldiers would come and break the legs of the condemned to go ahead and speed up the process of death. This was the case later. They said, hey, we're going to go break the legs because it's Passover. You know, we have to be ready for this, and people can't be hanging on a cross during this time, so let's go ahead and kill them, get out of the way so that we can do what we have to do. 
So they go to Jesus in order to break the legs, and they find that he's already dead. We'll get to all this later. I don't have time for that today. But understand that that is yet another fulfillment of prophecy because it's said in the Scriptures that no bones would be broken. And they went to break his bones, but he had already died. You see more of that sovereignty of God. Listen, the totality of Christ's suffering was not due. And this is the last point, so allow me this. The totality of Christ's suffering was not due to the scourging or the physical components of the cross. This is important for you to understand. Kids, I want you to listen to me. What Jesus suffered most was not the nails and not the whip across his back. What he suffered most was being forsaken by God, was the wrath of God. And the wrath of God was intertwined with being forsaken of God. You see, a lot of men were scourged, and a lot of men died on a cross. But Jesus died unique to any other man that's ever suffered or any other woman that's ever suffered because in that moment, the Bible says that he became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He became sin, not a sinner, but he became sin, and therefore God's crosshairs towards sin were fixed on Jesus. And then God dispensed his wrath on Christ. You see, wrath is much more than anything a man can deliver. Wrath is much more than nails that a man can put in your wrist and feet. Wrath is much more than a, a whip across your back. You can have 57 lictors with, uh, with, with, with a, a million lashings, and that would not be anything compared to the wrath of God. There's a supernatural element to what God dispenses on sin. That's what he did on Jesus. This is why we see in Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 through 46, that Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does that mean? What does it mean that he'd forsaken him? What does that mean? It means that Jesus became sin. And that created a necessary separation between he and God. And in that moment, God poured out his wrath on the Son. And the Son entered into anguish and turmoil like no man can understand. He suffered the wrath of God. And you might say, well, some man will understand. Men that go to hell, they'll understand the wrath of God. They will, but not like Jesus. And here's why. Because when Jesus bore the wrath of God, he bore that wrath not just for one sin of Alan Birchfield. But all my sins. And all the sins collectively of anyone that would ever believe in him. If my sins amount to a million. And Jamie's sins amount to a million. And everybody who ever sins amount to a million. That's a million sins for which Jesus suffered God's wrath per person in three hours on the cross. That's what it means that God will look on the anguish of his soul. But interestingly, it says that God would be satisfied. God would be satisfied in dispensing his wrath and watching the sun in anguish. How do we make sense of that? How do we make sense of that? It's 
Because before the foundation of the world, God had a desire, at which he always gets, by the way, God had a desire to glorify himself. And the way that he chose to do so was to providentially set this world in motion where there would be sin. There's no darkness in God. But the world did fall. And it wasn't because God had his back turns or he was off the clock. But things happened the way they happened because God ordained before the foundation of the world that he would put all of his attributes on display and he would provide a redeemer for the beloved church of the Son of God. And he would rescue them through redemption. And the only way to do so was for his son to suffer in tremendous agony. And when that happened, God's justice was met for the church. Suffering the wrath of God and being forsaken was necessary in order that Jesus secure for himself his bride. We talk about the love of, of Jesus when we look at the cross. And that's how the picture comes into full perspective. Is that he would do that for his bride. Now, some of us men grumble about menial tasks that would afford us the opportunity to show love for our spouses. We could all do well to take notes from Jesus. <laughs> I'm not saying go put yourself on a cross. That would probably be dumb. But what, what love he has for his bride, that he would do that. Imagine being under debt and for no reason, <laughs> no reason on your, of your own, someone pays your debt. How would you feel about that? Relieved, right? We can stand before God because our debt is paid. Our debt is paid. People are in hell because their debt's not paid, which is why I do subscribe to a limited atonement. It's Christmas time, and no better time to celebrate the gospel because the arrival of Jesus is a precursor to the death of Jesus. We celebrate Jesus' incarnation because it necessarily means his death. We celebrate Jesus' incarnation because it means his death, but it also means our life. So yes, Christmas is as much about the death and resurrection of Jesus as it is about the incarnation. Because you cannot divorce these two. Make sure that this Christmas is marked by Christ-exalting celebration. Make sure that the gospel doesn't sit cold in the shadow of Santa Claus, presence, food, and even family. But rather, display for others that the gospel is the root of our celebration. Eleven pages, and I'm done. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for grace today. I feel that you've given me great grace to work through these things. Lord, I feel that you've allowed me to be timely, and I thank you for that where I struggle with those things. I feel that maybe you've allowed me to be more concise than normal, and I thank you for that because I know that I'm not that concise of a person. And I can only attribute such gifts and blessings to me because your desire is that people would hear this in full. Lord, I know that there are so many other things that happen in this text, you know, that, uh, that we didn't get to discuss. But, Lord, we'll come back to some of those things hopefully next week and look further into some of these implications and applications. But I pray that this moment today 
and what we've seen with the scourging, the crucifixion, what we've seen with your sovereignty and, and, and the fulfillment of prophecy and the humiliation of Jesus, you know, and, and, and the suffering and the being forsaken, all of these things, Lord, would, would, would inform the celebration of our holiday season. Lord, also catapult us into 2021 with new fervor, with new hope, with a restored vision, with a restored excitement, with restored zeal and passion, because I know that we grow cold. Lord, with fresh perspective, with, 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 with deeper and, 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 and more solid routine when it comes to pursuing you. And if those things should come to pass, Lord, let us celebrate the reason for which they come to pass. And that is because you've made us into something new. Because who we were would never produce anything that would be pleasing to you. We ask that you would grant us grace and peace as we leave this place today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you're dismissed.